You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, Nikolai and Kirill. Hi, Hi, and thank you for inviting us. Well, I'm uh, very happy to have you on the podcast. I'm excited about this conversation. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, a publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are the proprietors of the Russians with Attitude podcast and Twitter feed, although I gather one of you does most of the tweeting. That's my sense. Uh, and, um, you know, for I, one reason I'm really looking forward to this conversation is because it's unusual, uh, even for my podcast, uh, which is to say it's a conversation with two Russians who support the Russian war effort. Uh, these are, this is a kind of perspective you don't very often hear, uh, certainly in mainstream media, even I think in American podcasts. Um, and I think it's fair to say I'm going to get uh, a certain amount of blowback for this. In fact, I've already uh, gotten a little anticipatory blowback. And so I want to explain why I'm doing it. Um, first of all, I'm a big believer uh, in just hearing the perspectives of everyone in the world. Um, especially everyone on both sides of all major conflicts. Um, it's called cognitive empathy. I'm a big advocate of that. Uh, that's not to be confused with emotional empathy. Doesn't mean you have to sympathize with them or feel their pain. Just means understanding their perspective. Uh, as regular readers of the non-zero newsletter know, uh, I believe that uh, a big failing of U.S. foreign policy generally is to not understand uh, the perspectives of people around the world and that we'd be in a much better place if it weren't for this um, cognitive empathy deficit. As a result of that, I've had a huge diversity of guests on this podcast who have gotten blowback from one place or another. I mean, on this particular issue of the war, I've had, for example, Anders Osland, this you know intense Russia hawk, he's a Swedish analyst, uh, but you know on other issues as well. I've had. Uh, you know, influential uh, advocates of the Iraq war, you know, Bob Kagan, Bill Kristol, uh, David Frum, truly influential people who 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 agitated for the invasion, uh, which which I opposed very vociferously. Uh, and I should say, for the record, I oppose uh, all violations of international law. And uh, and I have condemned the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the grounds that to me, it seems a clear violation of international law. Uh, as the Iraq war did uh, to me. Um, so, uh, and and by the way, at the other end of the political spectrum, I've had, you know, from the neocons, I've had uh, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Maté, Ronnie Akalik, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but I venture to say this is the only podcast in the known universe that's had all those people. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, you know, if if you find it offensive to hear uh, people explaining why uh, they supported uh, the the invasion of Ukraine, the war, you there's you know a simple solution. If it's too offensive, you shouldn't listen. Um, the good news is there are tons of podcasts where you won't hear that. Um, so there's plenty of plenty of ways to spend time. Uh, so anyway, uh, back to. Uh, Nikolai and Kirill, uh, and, and I apologize if it seems like I've invited 
uh, you on my podcast and then immediately apologize for being seen in public with you. Uh, I, 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 and maybe one thing we should talk about right away uh, is why I'm not literally being seen in public with you, because um, uh, as uh, the people who listen on the podcast won't be able to tell, but people watching YouTube will, you're not actually visible. You, I, I think, choose to remain more or less anonymous. Obviously, uh, there are going to be people who say that uh, that's evidence that you're part of some kind of uh, Russian, sophisticated Russian uh, info op or something. So I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you for starters uh, why you've chosen to uh, maintain that profile. Well, um, I always was more or less anonymous online, uh, just simple OPSEC. And uh, I had a thought recently that we should live stream and show our faces uh, covered in ski masks. So maybe <laughs> it will change. But I'm not yeah. sure that I'm not sure that would help. But uh, <laughs> um, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm personally I'm uh, well, I'm not exactly anonymous. I'm pseudonymous. I have been active in both Russian language and English language um info sphere for over a decade really now and um i'm just a firm believer in separating uh content so to speak from identity and um i well of course there's the usual upset considerations that it's just i mean it's just how i was really socialized when i grew up on the internet that you yeah. should not put too much of you out there and um that's just how i've always handled it and i also do believe that it's um to some extent uh, it's uh, it's better in some ways if you can really separate uh, the kind of uh, intellectual output you you put out there and from the person who is doing it mm -hmm. Does does this have anything to do with what the consequences could be within Russia for speaking your mind? I mean, that's a possibility that will occur to Americans. Not really, because yeah, just like Kirill, I was also always uh, active on the Internet and Russian political sphere and not political sphere. But yeah, re remaining anonymous has nothing really to do with uh, being afraid of the government in my case. Okay. Not really. And, and uh, Kirill, I heard you explain on a podcast once your accent, and that that may people may wonder it doesn't sound like a pure Russian accent. Uh, what's uh, the... Yeah, I've spent uh, much of my life uh, living outside of Russia and Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, but you're both Russian citizens. Uh, yes. You both support the war effort. Uh, let me start by asking you. Um, do you have in your heads a conception of what the average American watches mainstream media would think would be the reasons you support the war before I ask you what the reasons are? Or does that question not make sense? Uh, it does uh, make Yeah, you, you go first. Yeah, I wanted to scale back a little bit and uh, just discuss the Russian-American relations in general terms, not just of the war effort, but uh, the history of Russian-American relations. But we can do it 
after your question, probably. Yeah. So go ahead, Kirill. Okay. Real? So I think um, that is um, what the average American, I think the, the overall information diet of the average American is quite partisan and depends on what kind of, uh, well, what kind of mainstream media he consumes. Although, of course, in terms of uh, foreign policy, there is, uh, especially in recent years, there has been a kind of convergence of um, where you have uh, both the dams and the reps basically supporting the same foreign policy positions. But um, of course, uh, like the average low information person, I guess, uh, would believe either a mixture of um, us living in some sort of 1984 style information bubble, where it is impossible to, to get true information, which uh, uh, is shown on the likes of CNN and stuff, and also probably to a large extent uh, some belief in the congenital evil of the Russian people who who cannot help their their barbarous culture and uh, things like that. Okay, and uh, what would you say are the reasons uh, you supported the invasion? Mm, it is sort of a it's a the question is larger than it seems because it's not like the conflict just began out of nowhere in 2022. Uh, I personally have been following the conflict very closely since its inception in 2013. And uh, back then, I, I remember in October 2013, when the protests in Ukraine were just about to really kick off and become violent, I, I wrote a short essay where I said that if uh, there is no like if nothing major happens, then Ukraine will have a civil war within half a year. And exactly six months later, the civil war in Donbass actually kicked off. And yeah, now, okay. in, 20, in 2014. A couple and, of, okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, and um, I have been involved quite closely with some people who have been active in the Donbass since 2014, both humanitarian and uh, the military side, I personally know a lot of people who participated in uh, the Donbas war, both in, on the military and on the humanitarian side. And uh, it's just a very dear um, topic to me in general, the, the plight of the people of Donbas who have been suffering for eight years uh, from the effects of the civil war after the regime change or coup or revolution or however you want to call it in Ukraine. And um, the Russian military intervention is something that I would have liked to have seen occur in 2014, because then it would have been largely bloodless, like the Crimea operation, for example, which literally ended without a single shot being fired. And um, I do believe that it was a very great mistake of the Russian government uh, to not interfere back when it could have been achieved largely without violence. And of course, I'm not happy that there is a big war going on now, but I do believe that it is uh, it was inevitable that it would happen sooner or later, and uh, probably sooner is uh, better than 
later, I guess. Okay, Nikolai, before I ask you to chime in, let me say a couple of things. First of all, if there's anybody who's not conversant in the history, 2013 is when you start uh, getting the protests that culminated in what's variously called the Maidan Revolution, the Dignity Revolution, a coup, a Western-backed coup, depending on where you stand. Um, and it led to the deposing of a, a president who's called pro-Russian, uh, relatively speaking. I guess that's fair, although people might uh, quibble. In any event, he uh, he did uh, plan to, um, he, he decided not to, to, to put Ukraine's, uh, uh, go in with the EU and get this associate membership thing. That was a huge controversy. Uh, and he decided to, in that sense, stick with Russia. He was, I think it's safe to say, violently deposed. He fled for fear of his life. Uh, and, and, and the other thing I want to say, aside from setting the historical stage, is to say that when you said then a civil war erupted, you know, most Americans who are paying attention are going to say, wait, what do you mean? What happened was, I mean, first of all, they, they don't think of that as the violent overthrow of a democratically elected president, which I think technically you, you really kind of have to say it was whatever you think of how it came to a head and, and, and how laudable the protests were, whatever you think about all that stuff. Um, they don't, they don't think of it that way. And then as for the civil war part, they think, wait a second, Putin seized Crimea. And then as for the separatist movement in the Donbass, I think most Americans who have a view, uh, would say, but wait, wasn't that uh, Russian inspired and supported from the beginning? And if they really know the details, they might mention this. What's his name? Strelnov or Strel? He's got two names. It confuses me. Strelkov. Yeah. Uh, and uh, wasn't he a Russian operative because he was involved in the separatist uprising? Uh, you know, from early on. So those are the kinds of questions that are going to occur to Americans. You might get around to addressing them eventually. I mean, the other piece of context, in case people don't know, is there, there, Ukraine has been an ethnically diverse society. The Ru the native Russian speakers have tended to be concentrated in the East and South. Native Ukrainian speakers, uh, more to the center, the West, the Southwest, and, and, and so on. And, 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 uh, you know, and uh, this is why, I mean, Putin actually said to an early, uh, uh, I think he said to Bill Burns in like 2007, who was the ambassador to Moscow, then, you know, if you if you if you proceed with this Ukraine NATO thing, there's going to be a civil war. That's what he was talking about. So, um, Nikolai, do you do you uh, Kirill may have something to add in light of my intervention, but do you have anything you want to say? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about start from the beginning about the Russian-American relations. Uh, so the main reason why me and Kirill have created RWA in, uh, what, when was it? In 2020? Uh, yeah, I, I think, think so. I think 2019, actually. <laughs> no, 2020. Yeah, so, okay, 2020. Anyway, so we mm. uh, wanted to fill this void in rather one-sided one relationships between uh, U.S. and Russia, because America has been influencing Russia for, well, half a century now. And Russian culture projection in the U.S. is almost uh, non-existent. And, uh, you, mean course, we, you mean we don't have any understanding of what Russian culture is generally like? Yeah, or? pretty much, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, 
of course, uh, some American chauvinists uh, could claim that uh, they don't know anything about Russia because Americans are not interested in Russia at all because it's a fr frozen hellhole. Although it's uh, 30 degrees Celsius right now and, and it's uh, it's <laughs> very tiresome. But yeah. By the way, don't Americans don't know what 30 degrees Celsius means either. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, me it means exactly. uh, warmer than you might think, I guess. Uh, right. Yeah, it's a 100 uh, degree uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as, but it's not true. I think the interest in all things Russian is very high because, well, Russian literature, opera, ballet are one of the finest in the world. Russian political and military decisions uh, influence the global markets in a very major way. Russian language uh, is second most popular language on the internet by the sheer amount of content being produced. So, in short, Americans do care. And um, <laughs> in every other action movie or video game, there are Russian bad guys. But the problem is we are not being portrayed in an honest fashion at all. Not a single uh, actual Russian is involved in any of that. They hire whoever, right, to portray Russians in a although, cartoonish way. Although yeah. I do ac I do accept Dolph Lundgren as an honorary Russian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. So uh, I think uh, this mm, misinterpretation, mi mis, uh, uh, yeah, Miss, uh, I think it's been done on purpose, basically to sever any possible connection between our two great nations. And um, for example, there's probably not a single Russia expert in America that uh, can pronounce Russian words correctly. Uh, the only sort of quote-unquote quote -unquote Russian you get on mainstream media. Uh, actually, I'm not sure. I only know that uh, Masha Gessen is a kind of popular popular Russian in American media. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob, uh, do you know any more Russians in American media? In Who American right media, yeah, that. Uh, no, it's it's not a common thing. I mean, I know. Uh, I actually, uh, I know a Russian well who worked for me for a long time. Uh, isn't exactly on your wavelength. Ideologically, I know of a lot of uh, Russians. I mean, there are a lot of a uh, lot of people in 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 AI who are in America. I mean, they're from Russia, whose names are Ivan. I know that, um, who have been influential in the development of AI. So I, I'm I'm aware of a yeah. big um, a big influence of. I've been to Russia, um, but I don't. Um, no, I think you're right. I I, I take your point that um, I, you know, look, I, I am not a defender of American. Mass media. I mean, it's just. I, I. I think it's gotten worse. I, I. I think. You know, my own view. This isn't our main purpose here to hear my own views, but it, it is that um, they're doing a really. They've done a bad job lately, generally, of presenting things like including American domestic politics, but certainly including this war, uh, and and that's one one thing I, I, I hope to in 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 some small way. Uh, fight against just by 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 letting you guys at least explain what your perspective is again, which I think is uh, valuable, uh, regardless of what you think about the the perspective. Sorry, long digression. the The short answer is uh, no. Masha Gessen, who by the way, did you know that she resigned from Penn because? Uh, are you aware of this controversy? 
Um, no. Oh, well, she uh, Penn, which is this writer's group in America, it's kind of the prestige writer's group, group of writers and defenders of, in principle, free speech. It's international, had, yeah. Yeah. I oh, think. you're right. It is international. And they had a big, uh, some big conference with a lot of panels. And she had a panel with a couple of Russians who were against the war, okay? And then there was a panel with some Ukrainians, and it was a different panel in like a different time or a different room or something. But the Ukrainians said they would not appear on a panel at a conference that also had a panel with Russians. These were anti-war Russians. And Penn said, okay, you win. Uh, we'll cancel the panel with Russians. And Masha Gessen uh, resigned in protest. She was the vice president of Penn. So anyway, she writes for the New Yorker, um, and uh, that's a that's a, a you know a, a, I think a relevant anecdote about the, you know the way people are processing all this. Um, yeah, uh, poor Marsha Gessen, I guess. But uh, yeah, so we created RWA to possibly construct a healthy dialogue uh, between us to represent the actual Russian sentiment, because uh, me and Kirill are perfect centrists, actually, ideologically. So we represent the... <laughs> now, serious, actually, Russian. serious question. Serious question. Where would you put yourselves on the Russian ideological spectrum? How should we think of you if, like, if there's a spectrum from pro-war to anti-war, like, what percentile are you, do you think? Mm, well, it is a bit <laughs> of a complicated question because, um, you know, uh, as I've said, I have been supportive of the uh, efforts of the people of Donbass since 2014. And back then in Russia, that was a fringe position. It, uh, was, it was a fringe position and I personally know people who were apprehended by Russian security services for... Um, just for doing humanitarian aid runs into Donbas and uh, supposedly illegally crossing the Ukrainian border while doing that. So at the time, it was not the some kind of Kremlin line to be pro-Donbas. And uh, basically, people like that were regarded as uh, like fringe hawks outside of uh, polite political discourse. And uh, so when the war began, and suddenly um, it did become the mainstream position, uh, the, the more or less. Uh, so it's uh, not like um, I have been uh, like on the pro-Kremlin line on here. I have been very critical of uh, Moscow and the Kremlin and Putin for years for their neglect of the issue. And um, as such, it is kind of in a weird position. Now, where basically the government pivoted to my positions and not the other way around. And um, as such, well, I, the, I, I'm not sure if, if like being pro-war or anti-war is uh, really the, the correct um, way of categorizing views. I think it is more of like the war is already there. It's, it's, uh, it's not going to end because someone is for or against it. And uh, the question uh, is uh, if you're pro-Russian victory or if you're pro-Russian defeat is, I guess, is the divide. And in that sense, I am definitely pro-Russian uh, victory. Okay. And uh, Nikolai, did you want to say more 
or answer the question I just asked? Right. So uh, I don't think that Kirill's position or mine was uh, that we were outliers. It's that um, before this war, the vast majority of Russian population just did not care. And uh, they were out of the polite discourse or any discourse. And now they kind of, kind of are more active, I guess. And no one really knew about what is the average uh, opinion of a Russian commoner. And no one really cared. Uh, so it's, a, it's two different worlds. Uh, worlds, the post-2022 and pre-2022. So it's a bit hard and it's, yeah, I don't think that's, yeah, I'm not sure how to uh, measure my percentile. Uh, sorry. <laughs> okay. But as of before the war, if we go back four, five, six, seven, at some point, you two were unusual in Russia and even paying a whole lot of attention to the Donbass issue almost. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much Nikolai was uh, uh, involved of following the events back then, but yeah, I, I, I would say that that's true and, myself. And now explain to people what you think the issue is. What motivated you? Uh, you know, what was going on in the Donbass that you thought needed to be redressed? Well, you see, um, in, just in the beginning when I mentioned the events in Donbass as the reason for my continued support of, of the war efforts, you, you had to clarify a little bit of history for your, uh, for your audience, because people might not be aware of everything that's happened since 2013. And I think that is the, the main issue while, why it's even so difficult to talk about this, because, uh, the issue cannot be understood without going back to history and basically going back to at least 1991. Um, the what Putin himself described as the the great geopolitical catastrophe, and also what has been pointed out by a figure who used to be quite respected in America, Russian uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who uh, also spoke and wrote at length about the Ukrainian issue. Namely, that the Ukrainian state in the Soviet administrative borders in which it uh, existed um, is very artificial in the sense that there it's not uh, a construct that is uh, that follows any ethnic borders. It is not a construct that has a coherent civic identity, and as such, there would always be huge contradictions between the people in the east and south of the country who identify as Russian and have always identified as Russian, and people in other parts of the country, to the west and to the center and so on, who do not have a strong Russian identity. And especially, um, like Ukraine is not on the other side of the world from Russia. It's uh, right on the border. It's uh, There are infinite uh, amount of social and uh, familial ties. Like, it's very hard to find uh, a Russian who does not have some sort of distant relative from or in Ukraine. And um, as such, it's an issue that is very close to the hearts of many people when it becomes a problem. It, uh, 
It was not a, really a problem in Soviet times when it was just one country anyway. It was not really a huge problem in the 90s and uh, in the early 2000s when, despite the fact that there were, was a border between Russia and Ukraine, is still many people did not really regard it as a very separate existence, especially in the east of Ukraine. So the the collapse of the Soviet Union turned out to be an absolute disaster for the uh, people in Ukraine who identify as Russians. There was, of course, the general post-Soviet problems, the demographic decline, the industrialization, and the social hierarchy changed a lot. The, the Communist Party elites were replaced either by gangsters or by political elites who turned themselves into economic elites. And um, these new elites, they cling to those sectors of the economy that could generate capital. Ukraine turned into an oligarchic state, much like Russia in the 90s. And there was constant conflict between the various regional uh, oligarch groups and industry monopolies. In Russia in the 2000s, you had this process where the the regional uh the powerful regional economic groups were eventually brought to heel by methods one may or may not approve of but um the the feudal character of the russian economy in that sense was broken and uh, uh, by putin and this did not happen in ukraine and in ukraine you had these uh, oligarchic groups basically form political blocs. For example, uh, in eastern Ukraine, this was the, the so-called Donetsk clan, which was a bunch of uh, industrialists who were in metallurgy, the energy sector, and so on. And on the other side, you had the more financially oriented, um, the, the so-called Dnepropetrovsk clan, which is interesting because this is also a city in eastern Ukraine. But um, basically, and these uh, oligarchical, purely economic units, they then form political blocs too. And these political blocs, they also use the ethnic issue for um, basically to support their economic positions. Okay. And can, I, can I interrupt and ask yeah, a course. question? So, um, so you're setting, I guess, the, the, the context for why, in your view, the uh, the needs uh, and 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 rights of of the people of the ethnic Russians uh, or uh, in in the Donbass especially weren't being met and respected, um, can you just quickly say what were the main manifestations of that in the when you got interested? I mean, there was a sense of grievance, right? You identified. Mm -hmm with people in the Donbass who, in your view, were being mistreated or something, right? What were the, what were the examples you'd point to if, if you wanted to win support for your cause? Mm, one of the main issues was always the language issue. Um, so basically, um, Russia, the Russian language, which uh, is the, the native language of most people in Ukraine and the uh, overwhelmingly used as an everyday language everywhere in Ukraine outside of uh, Western Ukraine, which is closer to Poland. But it was not um, an official language. It was 
equalized in rights with the Ukrainian language in some regions, particularly the East, but it was not. Uh, it was this was not fixed in the constitution. So, for example, official documents could be in Russian, but uh, entering universities was, for example, only possible uh, based on the results of uh, high school finals, and high school finals included necessarily exams in the Ukrainian language and Ukrainian literature. So, a normal person, a young person from, for example, Donetsk, uh, who has never in his whole life met anyone who speaks Ukrainian, mm -hmm. um, had to study uh, this Ukrainian language and Ukrainian literature to be able to go to university, uh, which led to a kind of like basically institutionalized discrimination of native Russian speakers in the Ukrainian university system, which of course also has effects on then what goes on after university. And you also had to take uh, proof proficiency in the Ukrainian language uh, to work for the government, mm -hmm. to become uh, a government employee. And um, what I, where I was going with the uh, digression on the, the, like the different political clans in Ukraine is that in the end, the one of the clans, the, the energy sector clan, um, the political bloc out of which uh, people like um, Yushchenko grew. Um, Yushchenko, they... he, was he a president at one point? Yes, yes, uh -huh. he was. He was the president before Yanukovych was ousted in twenty thirteen. Okay. And um, that this group specifically used Ukrainian nationalism as a political weapon to achieve their goals and to fight against their what used to be only economic competitor, competitors, but what also turned out to be political competitors. And the ethnic question, it played greatly into that. Mm -hmm. And um, while the other bloc, the, the party of regions, uh, which uh, grew out of the Donetsk clan, um, it did not do that. So, so it tried to, to be... Uh, uh, centrist and and to appease the Ukrainian nationalists and as such the Russians of Ukraine did not really have any political representation at all. Mm -hmm. um, there was the pro-Ukrainian political bloc and the vaguely pro-Russian bloc, which was not actually pro-Russian because it did not actually do anything for the rights of uh, of uh, Russian speakers or Russians in Ukraine. And um, as such, it was a quite one-sided confrontation, which in the end, of course, led to the pro-Ukrainian side having much more powerful political structures, which they used to topple the government in 2013. And the very first law that was um, adopted by the Maidan government was a ban on the use of the Russian language in official communications. And uh, wait, yeah. this was right after the revolution, you said it was the very first law they adapted, mm. and, and they and and and, uh, and it included even like, like small everyday humiliations. Um, like I read the memoirs of one of the rebels in the Donbass who who said that the last drop that made him join with the rebels, um, was that he was uh, he worked at a store or something. 
and and uh, by law they were supposed to address uh, clients in Ukrainian and not in mm -hmm. Russian, even in regions where like 100% of people speak Russian. And he was fined for speaking Russian to a client. And uh, that uh, this person said that this was the last drop in the bucket that that, that made him join with the now, rebel. Now, to clarify, I think one of the anti-Russian language initiatives the parliament passed right after the revolution was kind of overruled or something. I always had the impression it was kind of under Western pressure or something. But in any event, that wasn't signed into law. But I'm told that the thing you just alluded to is technically still on the books where if somebody comes into your shop, you're not, I, I don't know if this is enforced, but you're not allowed to address them in Russian unless they first ask to be addressed in Russian. Is that, is it your understanding that that's still on the books in Ukraine? Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's enforced much more uh, since the war began, obviously, now so, mm -hmm. uh, than before. So in areas where nobody speaks Ukrainian, it, I guess, yeah, I can see how that would lead to, if nothing else, a certain amount of wasted time if you actually com <laughs> complied with it. Um, so yeah, and, and the thing is also that um, the reaction. So what happened was that um, there was this political asymmetry because like the people on the Maidan, they ha I'm not saying they didn't have legit grievances. Of course, there were a lot of grievances with the Ukrainian government with the Yanukovych government, it was an incompetent and corrupt government. No, I'm not going to argue about that. And uh, the people who went on the Maidan to demand, who had certain political demands, um, they enforced their demands. And the people in the Donbass, they thought that they could just do the same and uh, go out in the streets, um, capture government buildings, raise flags or whatever. The initial demands were just federalization, basically. So, like uh, regional autonomy, uh, enshrining in the constitution that the Russian language has special rights in the eastern regions, and so on. Like these were the demands. The original, um, what became the core of the rebel movement, the the Donetsk Republic political movement, it was founded back in 2005. So it's uh, not like some new thing. Mm -hmm. And um, the the great injustice that, that that really happened here is that the people in Donetsk and and in Crimea too, uh, they did the very same thing that the Ukrainian nationalists did on on in, in Kiev, but instead of having their demands enforced, they were attacked with uh, like airstrikes and artillery. You mean they started out with peaceful protests and were attacked, or? Uh, yeah, so so basically a common talking point, as you pointed out yourself, is that the whole rebellion in the Donbass was just like a Russian military operation, a clandestine Russian military operation by Strelkov uh, crossing the Ukrainian border and like uh, capturing the government building in Donetsk and so on. But the chronology is a bit different. Um, the protests began back in March, the large-scale protests. Uh, in what was uh, called the the Russian Spring by mm -hmm. by uh, Russian media, and um, acting president Turchinov, uh, the first uh, president after the Maidan uh, revolution after Yanukovych was ousted, he signed the decree on the anti-terrorist operation in Donbas, as it was called, 
um, a full week before the Strelkov, who it's still not clear if he acted on government orders or on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, but a full week before he even crossed the border. So at that point, the protesters weren't armed yet. They, they, were, they were not armed. They had no access to weapons. They were not organized in uh, like a military or anything. Um, in various cities, in Donetsk, Lugansk, of course, but also in Mariupol, in Kharkiv, and in many other cities of uh, eastern and southern Ukraine. They started occupying government buildings um, on the eve of April 6, 2014. Okay, the, that is that is kind of a forcible thing, though, right? I mean, that's that's not just protests. I mean, so it was in response. I mean, to of the, course, yeah, I mean, of course, it was not entirely just just okay. uh, pure, purely peaceful, but it was no different from what the people on the Maidan did. Okay, and yeah, that exactly. is the point. They did the, the the exact same thing. Yeah, the legitimacy of Ukrainian government was shattered by the Maidan protest because. If uh, Maidan protesters could riot, kill police officers, bear could, uh, and have incredible outpourings of support from the so-called the global community for mm-hmm. doing that, then everyone can do it. And uh, Donbass people were dissatisfied by the new Maidan government, and they started protesting. Just like Maidan in 2013, it started out peacefully. But it also descended into violence with the help of foreign actors uh, in both scenarios. It's completely the same. And uh, it's very hypocritical to call, well, the Donbass uh, protesters that, uh, that turned into rebels uh, terrorists and uh, have support, support the legitimate uh, protesters of the Maidan because they're not that different at all they are different but uh, for, for for other reasons um now are you saying that the when you say with the support of foreign actors it's it's an established fact that foreign actors uh supported the protest movement itself uh in a significant way including re- representatives of the u.s government are, are you saying that and, and and of course there will be a number of listeners who when you uh talked about the protesters turning violent, as I think you did, will say, wait a second, didn't the police fire on the protesters first? I mean, what exactly happened is contested. I should say, you know, this Canadian scholar, Ivan Kachinovsky, is that his name? Um, do you know Do you know of him? No. Uh, well, he was on my podcast uh, months ago. At the time, he talked he had an uh, anyway the the paper he discussed has finally been published within the last uh week and uh um and, and he argues he, you you would like his argument is 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 all I'll say in terms of uh how exactly um the violence unfolded but in the west it's the, the standard story is uh police fired on protesters and that's why the government got overthrown. I think you would you would probably trace a different sequence event of events. Unless I'm wrong about that, we don't need to dwell on it except to note it. And I should say in general, you know, th- there may be people who, who hear you say various things and say, well, why didn't I push back? I'm not an expert. I'm just getting your views out there. People can argue, you know, take your task and, and do whole uh, blog posts and Twitter threads about it. And maybe we'll have a, a fruitful 
discourse. But anyway, go ahead, go ahead, uh, Nikolai. I did want I did want to ask which thing, as I said, which thing you're saying there was foreign support for the protests or the actual uh, or actual violence on the part of the protesters. I mean, the the whole logic is a bit backwards because, uh, well, in France there are riots, right, and police. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not actually following that. Uh, have they opened fire on the protesters yet? I don't know. Um, I yeah. Let's uh, pretend that they do. That uh, they open fire on the rioters. Uh, does it make? Does it rationalize toppling the French government? And everyone would agree uh, that it's uh, legitimate. Uh, I'm not sure yeah. that. I, I mean, <laughs> I in, the, in, they in the standard Western terror. narrative, I should say, in the standard yeah. Western narrative, these weren't rioters; they were protesters. But I'm, I'm just noting that. I mean, I, we won't. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, the, I think uh, there were different kind of sorts of protesters on Maidan. Uh, there was, of course, the public image pro uh, protesters, the students, and the grannies with. Uh, uh, the flags and all that, the chance, but there was an armed wing of the protest that started um, looting Soviet military depots and, uh, well, yeah, and uh, it was very well organized, the, the violence in Maidan. It was not a spur of the moment the granny uh, started <laughs> fighting back. Okay. But uh, it's Maybe we are too much dwelling on to 2014 and Maidan. Well, I, I, you know, I think it's important that that people understand uh, that there are conflicting narratives because you just really you don't you don't get you don't get that in the end. Look, I know enough to know that the story is actually, as a matter of fact, more complicated than it's generally presented as being in the mainstream media. So I just want uh, I, I, I just want to encourage people to. Uh, to research it independently. Uh, but go right. ahead. Right. So, and uh, as I was saying, so basically the, the great uh, injustice that happened is that the people in Donetsk tried to do the very same thing that people in Kiev did. And what they likely hoped for were two outcomes. Either that they succeed politically and uh, Kiev gives in to some of the federalization demands which was the main demand. It was not about like becoming a separatist country or joining Russia in the beginning. It was just about federalization. And um, But when it became clear that that would not happen, the people started hoping for the Crimean scenario. So basically Russian troops rolling in, um, the disorganized Ukrainian military just giving up, and it all ending without bloodshed. I'm sure that none of the people who went out to protest in Donetsk or Kharkiv or, or Lugansk in 2014 signed up for nine years of getting shelled. Um, but uh, yeah, and the fact that neither of this of these things happened, that need, Kiev didn't give in, Kiev just declared them all to be terrorists and started uh, like airstrikes and artillery strikes on them. And uh, but the Russian military also didn't appear and uh, did not like uh, end the situation before it could escalate into a real war. 
And as such, we did have a real war in the Donbass. And, and at some point, Russian troops came in and supported it, but that that conspicuous support was months into it. And as you said, the question, I guess the Strelkov guy showed up a week into the events as you described yeah, but his timing, were, but it's unclear. These were 50 guys. These were 50 guys. They basically just became the leaders of uh, uh, like spontaneous militias. They just organized the people into militias. They, like This was not really a... a, a, a like a military Russian unit army. or anything. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Strokov, I gather, had been in the FSB or something, no longer was, yeah. and there's controversy over whether yeah. the Russian government approved of what he did or not. Is that yeah, the deal? It's, okay. it's it's unclear. It's unclear. Okay. Yes. So let me um so I think people have a sense for the nature uh of um you know your your motivation. I'm sure there's a lot more you could say. I wanted to step back and say a couple mm -hmm. of things. Um about the way this is perceived in America. First of all, when you said it all goes back to what Putin has called the tragedy of Soviet dissolution in 1991, the way that's generally uh, taken in America is evidence that his motivation was to reconstitute the Soviet Union or at least some considerable part of it, uh, you know, that it's in some sense an imperialist aspiration. Um, they uh they would uh you know and uh, of course putin himself uh has presented his motivation as uh in the run up to the invasion as not being that uh and and he did uh certainly allude to what you have been describing about uh, in fact he described it in uh in extreme terms as as genocide i i i i guess I don't know if he meant mainly kind of cultural genocide, you know, in terms of the use of the language, but also, you know, there were people killed. And so I guess he meant it uh, in that way as well. But but he's also emphasized, of course, the national security issue of uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO. And if you pay attention to what he's saying, he's also saying that Ukraine, leave aside the issue of formal membership, had become a de facto platform for NATO. In other words, NATO countries were sending weapons in, trainers in, there were joint exercises and stuff. Uh, now, you have not, and, and and of course, in the eyes of people like John Mearsheimer, that's like the whole motivation, the national security motivation. Uh, that's, a uh, you know, one view. Uh, it's kind of a, you might call it a really strict realist reading of this. Um, so, so we've got at least several things. You're talking about the grievances of ethnic Russians. Um, there's the national security issue, and then there's the question of imperialistic aspiration. And, and, and people who attribute that motivation to Putin might pick up on what you said about how, you know, these kind of historical uh, connections between Russia and uh, Ukraine, which are certainly deep. I, I mean, there's no, I mean, in fact, for, as you know, for much of the Soviet Union's history, um, Ukraine was part of Russia, and then Khrushchev transferred you know changed that right as i understand it i think uh i think that's right or, or no was it just crimea was part of yeah crimea yeah. was part of russia he transferred crimea to ukraine okay so that's it but in any event long-standing historical connections um no doubt but but what i what i want to ask is like what how much significance does either of you attribute to these other uh 
motivations, national security considerations, and I'm talking mainly about how you read Putin right now, not your own motivation, um, how, how you read his motivation, national security motivations and imperialistic, in some sense, aspiration. Mm, I do Putin's think... own words, uh, yeah. he said once, uh, anyone who doesn't regret the passing of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anyone who wants it uh, restored has no brains. But does uh, he want to restore Russian Empire? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Go ahead, Kirill. Um, I do think that the national security considerations were the main actual reason for uh, the war happening and for the timing of the war. Like, I, I don't think that, that the, the National Security Council of Russia was uh, sitting there and thinking about uh russian women in uh grocery stores uh, being talked to in ukrainian which they don't understand i don't think that that was the uh, reason for the russian state to the russian government to begin this military operation obviously they had uh, different reasons and mainly national security ones um i do i do believe that yes this the realist uh, point of view is uh, the most uh, correct causal explanation mm -hmm. uh, which is different from like the moral dimension why why i personally believe that that it is the the correct uh the ethically correct thing to do uh the the military intervention um but yes i i well putin has been very opposed to to actually military intervening in ukraine for eight years and uh, there was the Minsk treaties, Minsk one and Minsk two. That, that's aside from Crimea, of course. But, uh, yes, but, yes, yeah, yes, which happened right Korea. after the revolution. I'm talking about Donbass, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I understand is that I mean we have public statements to that effect. That that we have statements from Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president who signed the Minsk treaty, from Angela Merkel, from uh, Francois Hollande. Um, who were all party to the Minsk treaties and uh, that it was not supposed to be a real peace treaty, that it was uh, just supposed to be um, give uh, the West time to arm Ukraine and, we and, should prepare, quickly, and prepare their army. Quickly say for people who don't know, the Minsk agreement, uh, which was signed on to by European countries and supported by America, although they weren't signatories, I think, but um, and, and, and signed by Russia, and Ukraine, I, I uh, would have, if executed, given a certain amount of autonomy to uh, these oblasts or provinces, which would have both, I, I guess, uh, allowed, uh, you know, mainly Russian-speaking uh, provinces to have, you know, linguistic laws to their liking and so on, but also would have uh, given them a kind of veto power over foreign policy that would have allowed, that would have... I think amounted to Ukraine never entering NATO, as I, as I understand it. Anyway, the Minsk thing fell apart. Uh, as you said, Angela Merkel now says that the Europeans were never sincere about it. I don't know if that's true. But anyway, I just wanted to provide that background. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Minsk Treaty included a bunch of things, uh, a ceasefire, um, the OSCE mission, uh to oversee the ceasefire and um various things about elections and constitutional reform mm -hmm. and so on uh which uh 
really never happened from the Ukrainian side. And there was also one part uh, that was never fulfilled by Russia either, namely uh, returning control of the the state border. Uh, like the border between the Donbas separatist republics and Russia was, uh, according to the Minsk Treaty, was supposed to go back to the Ukrainian state. And this never happened either. And the ceasefire was never really uh, 100% happened either. There were several hotspots where fighting, low-level fighting continued, and uh, shellings of civilian areas by the Ukrainian army also continued, uh, the shellings of Donetsk and especially, a city that has suffered very much since 2014. And um, But in other things, the Russian state was very insistent on applying pressure on the Donbas republics to adhere to the Minsk Treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do know this from personal knowledge, from personally speaking to people who were in the, in the Donbas uh, militias, the military, that they, they were not allowed to fire back when fired upon and uh, things, like, things like that. So the Russian state was very serious about enforcing the Minsk Treaty, while the other side was not serious about it at all. And now Western leaders, the Western leaders who signed the Minsk Treaty have publicly stated so, that they were not sincere about the Minsk Treaty, which um, the Russian government has been using uh, also as an additional justification and explanation for why the war is even happening. Um, I personally believe it's quite silly um, in the sense that, like, you can't, like, why would you blame your enemy for for doing things that benefit him? Mm-hmm. That, that 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 makes no sense. And um, in any case, the Russian government uh, tried to sweep the issue under the rug, more or less, for eight years. And uh, in my opinion, it is uh, something, some new developments in the realm of national security that forced the Kremlin's hand. I'm not sure what exactly it is. We had allusions to that. We had Zelensky uh, several weeks before the invasion stating that Ukraine plans to acquire nuclear weapons at some point in the future. And um, it might be connected to that. That's one of the personal theories I had, that uh, this was the red line for the Kremlin. But uh, we don't know for sure what exactly prompted the invasion at that exact moment. I think the timing is actually the most mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. Nikolai, do you have anything to say about anything we've been discussing? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just exhausted from the, all the heat. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, 30 I, I agree Celsius. with what Kirill said. Yeah, it's uh, too much for Western Siberia and, <laughs> and my rank. Health. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. No, uh-huh. Well, I'm in, in the Urals. I'm not, uh, some call it the Western Siberia. Uh, some disagree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The um regionalism. <laughs> the uh, so do you want to talk a little about um? And let me say, I mean, how are you for time? I hope you're not too exhausted. Uh, one thing we normally do at this point is, uh, you know, this has been we've been talking for an hour. Uh, is uh, we go into what I call overtime, and that's for paid subscribers to the non-zero 
newsletter. Um, and I guess we'll do that. I kind of hesitate because I think it's it's uh, it's really, I you know, I see real value in letting people, uh, you know, process your perspective as they see fit. And I hate to uh, exclude the unfortunately large number of people who are not paid subscribers to the non-zero uh, newsletter. Uh, from that, how are you guys for time? I mean, you had said you could do another half hour. If you can do more than that, we'll maybe postpone the paywall uh, another 10, 15 minutes or something. But how are you for time? Uh, Nikolai, you're close to passing out, I gather. <laughs> oh, I'm fine. No, I'm, yes. You not, <laughs> no, so you yeah. can... I'm you fine can, with them. Yeah. Okay. Let 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 let's spend another ten minutes in the in the in the public podcast because I want to I want to um, talk about the war as it uh, uh, you know as it stands. Um, I, I know from following your uh, your Twitter feed that you are not entirely uncritical of the way the war is being covered in Western media in in U.S. mainstream media, for example. Um, what would you say people are missing if they're relying on American mainstream media to process the war itself? Either of you? Mm, pretty much everything, really. <laughs> <laughs> like Western coverage is of the war is like really, really bad. There are a few, um, uh, I guess, uh, accounts the, by, by individual journalists, individual Western journalists, uh, war reporters who are on the ground, or maybe even some uh, OSINT, so open source intelligence accounts that do provide a more balanced view. Um, but overall, the mainstream Western media coverage of the war is like really, really bad because it relies um, I think there are very few uh, Western war reporters actually on the ground. And if they are on the ground, they are somewhere very, very far in the rear. Um, and, like, and they don't speak in, the it, language. Yeah, they don't speak Most the language. Them. They are in Kiev or in Lvov, so hundreds of miles from the front lines. Yeah. 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 And um, this leads to all the information being filtered through what these people are being told by basically press officers of the Ukrainian military. And um, as such, of course, that's not going to create any kind of realistic picture because uh, these are like uh, public relations people who, who, who uh, portray everything in ways that uh, benefits their uh, view and their cause. And what are examples uh, of uh, for either of you of things that Americans are missing by virtue of this, or just uh, you know particularly salient stories that you think have been misunderstood? Or, um... well, one of the main things. I mean, I, I have mostly stopped covering that because it's just too exhausting to do it every time. Yeah, I have stopped uh, following the Western <laughs> media for two years now, so I'm not an expert. Um, but uh, one very egregious thing is uh, the, the constant war crime accusations against the Russian military. I mean, probably some, some of the more ridiculous stories, uh, like, I don't know, what was it? Uh, Russian soldiers stealing and eating parrots. 
Pat Parrot. Mm. And uh, I, I like missed I missed that one, but I want to go on record as condemning that. <laughs> yeah, I condemn it too if it happened, of course. Um, there was the matter of uh, the Ukrainian human rights commissioner who admitted to fabricating um, stories of uh, rape committed by Russian soldiers, mm. who on the record admitted to making these stories up to garner support for the Ukrainian cause. Does he still have his job? Or, or uh, uh, No, she was... She was, yeah, yeah. She, she was and that's fired. on the record somewhere if people uh i i hadn't caught wind of that but yeah yeah and uh, uh, this was like a year ago at this point or, or almost okay. a year ago at this point but there are many sides that's just the like the the apart from the purely military things yeah her the, name is uh, ludmila denisova yes denisova yes and um, would, would you concede that there have been some war crimes? I mean, the most famous example is Bucha, I guess, that uh, um, that that's, I think, the first name that would come to uh, the minds of Americans, at least who have a long memory. It's been a while now. It's been about a year. Um, I mean, of course, war crimes are happening. War crimes happen in every war. Um, that's, that's, of course, uh, no army on the planet is uh, some assembly of angels. That, that that's just the and war does take to the human psyche that that, that uh, lowers inhibitions uh, with regards to violence and things like that of course um but i would um dispute or like uh, rebuke the accusation of systematic war crimes occurring um that are like ordered by by russian leadership or whatever or or ordered or committed um they they have pretty tight rules of engagement with regards to civilians and stuff um in many aspects uh, like from what uh, i've talked to a lot of soldiers some of my good friends are soldiers in the war i've talked to them they they have uh, in part rules of engagement that are stricter than what the u.s military had in iraq um and um of course I'm not going to say that no war crimes have happened. That would be a ridiculous statement. Um, but especially with regards to Bucha, there are a lot of questions. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's going to do your reputation any good if I, uh, uh, if I challenge the, the narrative on that on your show. So, so well, I'm not I sure mean, if we should go into detail on that. Because I, I, there is a lot of detail to go into. Yeah, uh, I think you're. Uh, I think you may be giving me good advice. Uh, I mean, my. Uh, I mean, maybe we could save that for uh, if we have time in the uh, overtime segment. I mean, my understanding uh, had been that it seems pretty clear that there were uh, war crimes committed by Russian soldiers who. Uh, you know, uh, became intent on rooting out collaborators and decided to err on the side of caution, and that it's not impossible that uh, in the in the period between when Ukrainians seized control of it and when the press was admitted, it's not impossible that uh, collaborators uh, on the Russian side were rooted out and and punished. I I don't see how you can rule that out. It, it does seem to me that 
it's uh, it, it's hard to believe there weren't war crimes committed by Russians. Th that's Mike, and then I'm agnostic on the other side, but uh, that's my own view. If uh, I mean, if you want to say, if you want to add anything to that, I mean, you know, this is the idea of this conversation, right? I mean, I I I, I don't think we should go deep into the weeds, uh, yeah. but uh, it, it, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, if you want to say something before we move on. Mm, well, I'm just going to say two things. I'm going to talk about two things. Um, there was uh, recently, or not how recently, like three months ago or so, four months ago, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think it was the BBC. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not uh, completely sure, but a new uh, documentary about Bucha um, was released. And it had a lot of uh, footage uh, from CCTV and stuff like that. And they, what they showed is that um, there were units of the so-called territorial defense mm -hmm. of Ukraine, which was initially a sort of paramilitary, but has since been really integrated into the Ukrainian military as normal military units with uniforms and such. But at the in the early phase of the war, these were basically paramilitary units, and they were not uniformed. And combatants who are not uniformed is a very complicated gray area in terms of the laws of war, because um, while guerrilla activity is uh, permitted by the laws of war and uh, civilians are allowed legally to take up arms against invaders. Mm -hmm. um, it is a gray area in the sense that if they are not uniformed, if they don't wear any insignia, if they are really just people with guns, mm -hmm. then you they do not really have protections under the laws of war and are and can reasonably be regarded as illegal combatants. Okay. And and um, from the latest, from this documentary, which I watched, uh, which uh, showed like people who were supposedly murdered by Russian soldiers in, in the town of Bucha, um, it basically they stated that the territorial defense unit tried to defend Bucha, failed, and... Uh, and then the Russian army routed these territorial defense units out and um, took some of them prisoner and possibly executed them, which would be, as I said, it's a gray area because on the one hand, it's of course a war crime to execute prisoners, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, illegal combatants do not have protections. They, are, they do not have the protections which international um, law Affords to prisoners of war. So right, it is, but no, but but, but executing anyone who's been say who's been taken into captivity is a war crime, right? Sure. I mean, uh, it is it is again complicated because yeah. actually taking someone as a prisoner of war is um, a clearly legally defined process, and um, uh, you are not. Like a soldier is not obligated to take someone prisoner. He is obligated to to afford him certain rights if the enemy surrenders I, of, I, of his own volition. 
I will but say it, it is a gray area. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Yeah. I haven't seen what exactly happened, but uh, it is not as clear cut as it is usually presented. I'll, I'll say one one more thing. I mean, one one thing that kind of convinced me that I could uh, let the matter rest without further research uh, and 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 uh, be secure in the position I previously expressed is there was a New York Times elaborate New York Times thing. It did seem to me they convincingly showed that at least on one case, you know, they had some video, they had some pictures. There was a group of people who had been taken into captivity and they showed them being led somewhere. And then, as I recall, the the, the documentation convinced me that they were subsequently found dead. So it seemed to me uh, that had happened and that's a war crime. And so I left it there again. All kinds of stuff could have happened there. Uh, on you know, but um, and, yeah, that, yes, that was where I left it. That was and where I again, left it. and again, it's a question of scale because executing half a dozen soldiers is mm -hmm. a different level of war crime from indiscriminately massacring civilians. Well, it's which also, is which yeah. is uh, as it has been presented. It's also a um, question of where the order came from, and one thing uh, I'd encourage you know I I, I think. You know, we we should always just be try to try to be careful about that. I mean, this was, I think it was Ann Applebaum, whose name I'm you're probably familiar with, even if you mm -hmm. don't follow American media, uh, said right after Bucha, see Putin. It was something you know really extreme, like see Putin wants to kill all Ukrainians. It wasn't quite those words. It was almost that bad. I mean, it was almost. And I thought, well, we're a long way from knowing that Putin ordered this, whatever it was, uh, and. This is, you know, and of course, look, the position I'm in, you say something like that, it may in isolation sound reasonable and you get accused of doing Putin talking points and stuff. But again, my philosophy is you should try to be as clear and objective in assessing everything about reality and the world will be better if you do. That's my excuse for saying things like that. Um, So, uh I so I would like to to uh, go into overtime as we say uh, and move into part of the conversation that's available to people who subscribe non-zero newsletter. It's easy to do. You Google non-zero and Substack or something, or in your podcast app in the show notes, there's a a link you can click. Once you've done that, uh, you can either watch, you can either you know listen on Substack or just set up your special podcast feed such that forevermore you'll have access to all the overtimes all the bonus content parrot room on friday all all the stuff uh we do as well as the newsletters uh paywalled uh print stuff and you'll be supporting this enterprise if you think it's worth supporting um i, I want to ask you guys about some more current events stuff including uh uh progosian uh i want to uh ask you Kareel, about a tweet you did that uh one of the uh, uh, one of the commenters in, in I think it was in the parrot room who knew you were going to be on wanted me to challenge you on. I will challenge you on it. Um, mm -hmm. it it's related to this this whole business of well, you know, I mean, I'm going to ask you that now, and then we'll move. Right. Uh, 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 and then I also want to give you guys a chance to say anything you want to say to the people who won't be with us for the rest of the conversation. Uh, the tweet is related to what we were just talking about, okay? You know, people, I was saying, uh, you know, the, this was somebody advising me, I think, not to uh, 
not to have a conversation with you. Uh, and they pointed to this tweet. This was in the middle of the Prigozhin, whatever it was, mutiny. Uh, and you, your first tweet, which this person didn't cite, was, I'll go to bed now. We'll see if Russia still exists when I wake up. Then you added, the one saving grace is that the massive missile strikes didn't stop tonight, and there's a new round of air raid alarms currently over most of Ukraine. Now, I'm sure what this person is thinking you know, you're, you're, I mean, air raid alarms going off. That means civilian populations are fleeing, uh, attacks on civilian populations and so on. I assume that's what this person is saying. Uh, do you want to respond to that? Say anything else you want to say before we move into overtime? And then, uh, Nikolai, if you want to say anything, you should feel free to. I mean, sure. I was just expressing uh, that uh, happiness about the fact that the, the, that the mutiny did not seem to have any impact on uh like the, the Russian military HQ and on planned operations and that there was no great disruption in the war effort and no not no noticeable effects of the mutiny on the war itself. And of course, there is like an epistemic abyss between uh, what uh, I consider uh, the, the point of the missile strikes and what someone with, who thinks that the missile strikes only strike like kindergartens and 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 animal shelters beliefs um like uh, i yeah i mean i uh, i do think it's good that the wagner mutiny did not have an impact on russia's ability to wage the war and continue deep strikes against ukrainian military infrastructure and uh, while someone who believes that the only point of Russian missile strikes is to massacre civilians uh, has, of course, a different point of view on that. And uh, yeah, so your view is that the, uh, you know, there are strikes that hit cities and are hitting their targets. Of course, there are also things where things are hit that weren't the target, whether they're, you know, hit by anti-aircraft missiles or, or, or Russian missiles that went astray. But there are there are attacks on things that are in cities. You are arguing that by and large, those are actually legitimate targets. Uh, they're not they're not uh, populations of civilians that are being targeted. I guess. Mm, I mean, of course, missiles can go off target. Missiles can crash. Missiles can be shot down and land somewhere where they shouldn't land. Mm -hmm. um, this is it's regrettable when this happens, of course, but. Um, Okay. You, you, you Americans came up with uh, with the term collateral damage, and while it is of course always tragic when it happens, it is. Uh, I do think that there has been remarkably little collateral damage in the course of the Russian air campaign, compared to other contemporary modern conflicts like I don't know Iraq or Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay, Nikolai, do you want to say anything before we move into overtime? Yeah, I just want to remind your audience that uh, on our podcast, we're not just talking about the cur current war and politics. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, we started out as an uh, esoteric and historical podcast. We were the type of guys that would uh, review uh, the Soviet uh, occult practices or the life and work of Rosanov or, or Leontiev, obscure uh, Russian philosophers. Mm -hmm. Of course, we quite uh, <laughs> got carried away with this war. <laughs> but uh, good news, folks. Uh, if you want to check out our podcast, Russians with Attitude, the time is now. Why? Well, because we started recording and releasing our greatest uh, 
to this date uh, historical series, uh, the Romanovs. We are reviewing mm -hmm. every single Romanov ruler, debunking pop culture myths, researching Russian sources, and trying to make sense out of all of this, mm -hmm. uh, out of the Russian most uh, famous regal dynasty. Uh, so you're welcome to join us in our journey and yeah, listen to the Romanov series and other stuff we do. Uh, yeah, you know a lot about history. I would I listened to the beginning of that, and I would just say that the person you call Ivan the Fourth is known in America as Ivan the Terrible. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. A, a bit of a mistranslation, but <laughs> terrible can mean a couple of things, right? It's <laughs> okay. not just awful. Okay. Yeah, I just I just noticed you you. Uh, uh, I had to look it up to see if Ivan Fourth was Ivan the Terrible. But um, anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. now I'm. <laughs> yes. uh, so uh, okay, so thanks. We're, we are uh, uh, again going to go into overtime. I, I, I don't want to be too defensive, but I just want to say one more thing about the issue of like whether Putin really wants to kill all Ukrainians or doesn't, and why I want to be clear on that and not uh, go too far in the evidence. I just think I worry about escalation generally. I worry about nuclear war. I worry about you know, uh, World War Three, NATO getting bombed, so on. But the general principle is I think you should always think of your enemies. It's in your interest to think of them as exactly as bad as they are and no worse. And that's why when the Ann Applebaums and the Michael McFalls of the world, you know, uh, in my view, uh, kind of caricature uh, what's actually going on and I'm not saying, look, I, I, I'm not a Putin fan. I, I, I condemn the invasion and so on. But I think clarity um, clarity is a virtue. Um, okay. So with that said, uh, thanks to everyone who's uh, been with us this far and won't uh, follow us into overtime. I encourage people to follow us there. And we will see you there.